Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. When we hear a story of judgment in the Bible, our natural tendency is to try to identify the good guys versus the bad guys so that we can make ourselves one of the good guys. In this sense, we're no different than the slaves in the parable of the wheat and the tares, We want to be on the right side so that we can remove the ones whom we decide are on the wrong side. However, in the parable, the Lord and master of his slaves prevents us from doing so in order to protect his wheat. As a result, both the wheat and the tares are forced to live together in God's field until the time of the harvest. In the meantime, No one is allowed to judge anyone or to separate one kind of person from another. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 24 to 30. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 304 of the Bible as Literature podcast. The Gospel of Matthew began with an anti-kingly genealogy. Then we were emasculated by the proposition of Jesus as the shepherd king was born in the city of David. And then we were slammed, and I'm using these words purposefully, Richard, we were slammed by the Sermon on the Mount, all in anticipation of the kingdom. Jesus in the parables in Matthew has been systematically demonstrating how everyone falls short of the measure of the Torah expressed in the perfection of the Sermon on the Mount. But now we come to a turning point in Matthew with the parable of the tares among the wheat, truly shifting to judgment in a very explicit way. This idea of judgment, it's always based on the actions that are taken. You know, before this, we had the last parable all about sowing and sowing and sowing. And then in this next parable, it's all about harvest. And how does one harvest? The job of the soil is simply to accept the seed so that the seed can grow and produce what it produces. The job then of the one who teaches is to make sure that that word goes out, to make sure that that teaching goes out, to make sure the seed is planted and then it keeps moving and moving and moving. Okay, so now that the seed is planted, the job of the servants of the sower is to cultivate it and to make sure that it bears all the fruit that it can. So we have to remember that the fruit is the focus, just like you said, Father, it's all about the judgment. Whenever we have this focus on the fruit, 
then we have judgment in mind because that is when the cost is going to be counted. That is when the produce is going to be collected. That's where the final count is going to be made. That's exactly right, Rich. The fruit and the judgment are linked. And in effect, the parable of the sower in Matthew specifically consolidates the critique that Jesus has leveled against those who would call themselves teachers. There's a tension between people sowing the wrong thing, which results in blindness and possession by false spirits. And there's the son of man, the protagonist who loses in the gospels, Jesus Christ. You have this one who is sowing the teaching of the kingdom, which is his father's law. That's the progression in Matthew, and he is trying to raise up children to that kingdom through the line of Abraham, established not by lineage, identity, or tribe, but established by the instruction. This is what makes you an adopted son. This overview that I'm pushing, Richard, I think is critical because Matthew really will open up the parables of the kingdom as we shift from these stories of sowing and reaping. Jesus presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. And here, Rich, I'll just mention for those who don't know that the tares are a kind of weed that looks like wheat. So in scriptural terms, anything that appears to be divine, but is in fact not what it appears to be, pertains to the devil, because that's the symbolism, for example, in Revelation of the number six. Seven is the divine number. Six represents the imposter. That's why three sixes represent Nero. The three sixes emphasize that Nero truly is the Antichrist. In the Greek language, if you take the name of Nero to its numeric equivalent, it spells out 666. So it's a symbol very clearly in the text that shows in the case of Revelation how Nero is an imposter. And here, the tear functions the same way. It's an imposter in God's field. And this imposter, I think the reason why this is so important, Jesus keeps bringing up these problems that come up in this process. Jesus is not naive that by presenting the kingdom, then all is well. I mean, in the previous parable, you sow the seed, and you already know ahead of time that a good portion of it is not going to bear any fruit whatsoever. In this parable, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. The kingdom is sowing this good seed. It's teaching this good teaching. But immediately, Jesus recognizes that there's going to come along somebody who's going to want to mess it up. And this is linked to the option in the previous parable of the weeds coming up and choking out the good plants. And that is the deceitfulness of riches, the cares of the world, that sort of thing. The kingdom is always going to be set against the cares of this world. And Jesus knows right away. Now, in the previous parable, they just kind of come up. He doesn't explain any origin of these weeds. But here, there's an enemy 
who specifically comes to mess up the kingdom. If we relate it to the previous parable with distractions of the cares of this world and riches, this is no accident that there's some other teaching, another kingdom that human beings might want to follow. The kingdom is sown with good seed, but there's always someone who wants to distract from the kingdom so that you follow the riches and the power and the cares of this world. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. You were alluding to this earlier, Rich, that when the time for the harvest comes, when the crop starts to become ready, that's when we can see the outcome. Now in verse 26, it's possible to start differentiating between who was truly sown with the gospel and who was sown with the lie of the devil. There's not an obvious distinction right away between the two. This is the problem, and this is always the trick. I mean, it's like when people say that fascism, when it comes to America, will come in the form of a Bible wrapped in an American flag. I mean, it looks so similar. It sounds so similar. You can't tell the difference immediately between the wheat and the tares. You care so much about the fruit, of course, but there are these weeds that are coming up at the same time, sown by someone who wants to distract from the kingdom. This is the dilemma that Jesus is posing to the disciples. Okay, we've been teaching all this teaching, and here comes this false teaching about the comfort and cares of this world. What are you going to do about it? And then Jesus, in the following verses, is going to tell them what they're supposed to do about it. But this is the main thing. You've got a mix between the good teaching of the kingdom and the bad teaching of the world. What are you going to do about it if what you care about is the fruit of the kingdom? This next verse, Richard, is critical because, once again, it introduces terminology from the Greek that is critical to the entire narrative arc of the New Testament. It leans, once again, on historical context and the original languages, so I'll read it in English, and then I'll pull out the Greek phrase that I think is relevant here. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? I'm thankful that in this case, the New American Standard Bible did not shy away from controversy and translated the word thuli as slaves. But there's something unfortunate about the word landowner in English because, again, it loses the richness of the original. Listen to slaves of the landowner rich in the original Greek, thuli to ikodespotu. The first part of this compound word is ikos, which means house. We have in the New Testament the chief slave, ikonomos, the house law, the house rule. And here we have the house despot. All of this language taken together is steeped in the cultural norms of the Roman household. So these are not servants who work for somebody who owns a piece of land in Wisconsin. These are slaves of the despot of the house. Even more scandalous to me, the word kyrie, which means Lord, is translated as sir. So you have the despot of the house, the Lord, which is, you know, a big title. He's the Lord and master, the despot. This is how we Eastern Orthodox talk about our bishop liturgically. It's very nice insofar as it goes against the grain of Western culture. It's very useful 
liturgically as a teaching tool, this language, because it's scriptural. And, you know, the guys that are walking around working are slaves, so always keep this in mind. You know, we're talking about the parable of the kingdom of the heaven, Ivasilia ton uranon. So, of course, it makes sense to have the slaves and the master of the house, whom they call Lord. The people who are running the house, who are in charge of collecting the fruit, are slaves to the master who buys all the seed for them. Slaves don't decide what seeds they're going to buy and how they're going to buy them. The Lord comes and says, here are the seed, you need to go plant them. The kingdom of heaven that this is depicting requires a Lord that is in charge of distributing the seed to the ones who are sowing them. It's important to place our attention on the household and how the household is set up because these slaves have a job to do and now they're wondering what they're supposed to do. So they say, you know, didn't you sow good seed? Jesus, I thought you taught the gospel. I thought you taught Torah. What's the deal? We're hearing all these crazy things that sound kind of like what you're saying, but it doesn't sound quite right. How do we deal with this? That's what he's doing to the disciples. He's putting them in this position of having to confront this issue. We've got the true teaching and we've got these false teachings that sound awfully good. What are we supposed to do as disciples when we're confronted with this mix of good teaching and bad teaching all intertwined where it's kind of hard sometimes to tell the difference between the good teaching and the bad teaching? Lord, what are we supposed to do in that case? I think it's beautiful because Jesus sets it up ahead of time before the disciples even have a chance to ask the question. He is asking the question for them, so to speak. The disciples are going to get an answer about what to do when they see this mix of teachings out there in the field where they're supposed to be collecting fruit for the kingdom. It's clear that Jesus, the Ezekielian son of man, is the Lord and the master of the household in the story. He is the ecodespotin, he is the Kyrios, he is the one who is sowing the seed. And as that Lord and Master, he is also a caring shepherd who doesn't want to jeopardize the good fruit of his father's teaching. And he said to them, an enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, no, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Here, Matthew's teaching about not judging others is fully functional. And Jesus is explaining how he cares for the flock by holding back with patience until the time of the judgment to separate the wheat from the tares so as to protect the wheat. His reference is to care for the well-being of the fruit of his father's instruction. And if that means holding off and not allowing the slaves in his household to rush to judgment to decide which is wheat and which is a tear, so be it. As the Apostle Paul taught us, he won't even judge himself before the time. And that's the same teaching at work here. I love Matthew because it's complex and interconnected. The longer I spend time in Matthew, the more I am grateful, Father Mark, that we have this opportunity to move so slowly through these texts because we do have the time to see these connections as we converse with each other. 
the Lord of the house, calls out this enemy. The servants, naturally, what they think is, if we're going to have the kingdom, then we only want the one teaching. We don't want a mix of bad teaching and good teaching. We just want the one teaching, the good one. So the servants, who are not lazy, they're ready to get out there and work and start pulling up weeds one at a time. Jesus says, don't. Hold off. And this is what I think is so interesting. They might accidentally pull up wheat instead of a weed. And this is what Jesus's biggest concern is. This is what the master's main concern is. Don't accidentally pull up a wheat because the master only cares not about the purity of the field, that it only contains one teaching, but the fruit. He only cares about the fruit. And you accidentally pull up a wheat, you're going to lose that fruit. Leave it in there. And you know what? Leave in all the weeds. Because if you accidentally pull up a wheat that was destined to bear fruit, we lose out on that fruit. It is not about the purity of the field. I don't care if the field looks nice. I don't care if the field is amber waves of grain. I don't care. I'm wondering, do I get fruits of grain on the day of harvest? He is completely focused on the harvest. The disciples then, when they see this mix of teachings out there, they are not allowed to uproot those other teachings, which, as you said, Father, it's all interconnected. The previous scene a few chapters ago when Jesus sent the people out, they weren't supposed to argue just go and spread the seed. If the enemy sows other seeds and, you know, the people you confront have some wacky teaching that they're following, don't argue. Just sow your seed and go. Our job, if we're going to be hearing this word, is simply hearing it and bearing fruit. We have to wait for the Lord of the harvest to collect his fruit, to reap. That is his job, it is his call and his decision. What's interesting about this metaphor is that in this case, the slaves aren't the ones sowing, it's the Lord who is sowing, the Kyrios who is sowing the seed in this specific passage. And it's not clear. I think it's easy and wrong to assume that because these slaves pertain to the ecodespotin in the parable, that they themselves are protagonists, but it's not clear. Otherwise, why would Jesus have had to warn them just hold back until the time of the harvest? When you look at what's happening in our culture, people are all rushing around to heap coals on each other's head, and it causes suffering. These slaves may themselves, to the extent that they disobey the master and try to judge before the time, they may themselves sow tares in the Lord's field. Because if the slaves are disobedient and rush to judgment, they become a corrupting force. They make themselves the enemy. I want to stress that you cannot view the slaves positively or negatively. We want to view them positively because we like to think that Jesus is talking about us. That's fine as long as you understand a slave can be thrown out of the household for being disobedient. Always, always, always hold back from jumping into classical Western Hellenistic literature of good guy and bad guy. And guess what? This Lord, he's not out to destroy the bad guy. 
the thing that I mentioned before, that fascism comes in a Bible wrapped in an American flag, it is precisely this ideology that wants the entire field to be pure, wheat only. This is the root of nationalism. We want our kind, and we want to get rid of that kind. This is the heart of immigration. What kind of people should be mingling with us? This is the heart of the culture war. Is it okay that people believe this and believe that at the same time? I mean, it is the rotten comfort that comes from purity and being able to control what is going on around me. Because if I root up all the weeds around me, okay, then I know what kinds of plants are around me and I don't have to wonder. The person who thinks like that is perfectly willing to accidentally pull up something that's good just to make sure there's nothing bad around. We want to root up the evil in our midst before the time. So you know the Beatles song, Richard, Here Comes the Sun? This is Matthew's song, Here Comes the Kingdom. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to bury them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. We are stuck in the first half of verse 30 in this life. We must live together as wheat and tares without judging each other. This is the power of the proclamation of the kingdom for this life that we are living now. We have to live together. That is the foretaste of the kingdom. Who will be thrown out and who will be kept in will be decided. But until then, we are all in it together. This is the powerful proposition of the New Testament that brought the Roman Empire to its knees. You have no right to subjugate the barbarian. Likewise, the Jew has no right to condescend toward the Greek. You are all growing in God's field, and when the time comes, he will decide who will be bound up and thrown into the fire and who will be saved. It really captures the spirit of table fellowship in the New Testament. The difference between a tear and a wheat is that wheat produces wheat berries. Tares do not. In spite of how much the plant looks the same in its early stages, one produces fruit, the other one does not. The beauty of this parable is that in the end, this is all that the master of the house cares about. He's not going to run a DNA test on each one of the plants to make sure he gets the correct plant in the correct barn. He wants fruit, and whatever isn't fruit, he burns. That's it. If you're a wheat and you're not bearing fruit, you end up in the same place as a tear. It doesn't matter. The beauty of this is the mercy. Rather than choose purity at the early stages, he allows everything to grow up and to mature and to see what happens. So this is a moment of mercy. The servants were ready to judge. We're ready for the day of judgment. But the Lord said, you know what? We're going to wait. But not on the basis of purity, not on the basis of ideology, not on the basis of philosophy or what they're saying or the lip service and blah, blah, blah. We're going to wait to see what is produced. And on the day of harvest, on the day of collecting the fruit, that's the day where we're going to see the difference. And this mercy... Richard, that you were talking about, about holding off until the time. The key takeaway in Matthew is that 
like any law, it is trying to create a situation in which life can flourish despite human conflict and human disagreement. The difference is, unlike a human law, Matthew puts us in a position where there's no resolution of who is right and who is wrong. This is a really powerful mechanism in the biblical tradition. You have God constantly telling you that you're wrong through his story, but that we can't finally decide who's right or wrong until the time, and the time happens after each of us is long gone. Which in a way means that scripture is saying, for the time being, forget about who's right or wrong. It doesn't matter. What matters is living together. This is the life for which Jesus died. This is the life that is the fruit of the commandment. And this is the cause that is worth dying for, which is the life of the world. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.